Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. My Sporting Life. Paul Coit in conversation with Barry Hearn on Talk Sports. Today, a huge name in sport, but not an athlete or a competitor. He was born in Dagenham, Essex on the 19th of June, 1948, and went from chartered accountant to one of the world's most successful sports promoters. His breakthrough came in snooker, guiding Steve Davis to the world title, then to boxing, looking after Chris Eubank, amongst others, and then making darts the phenomenon that it is today. He's even the man that brought competitive fishing to television. For 19 years, he was the chairman of his boyhood club, Lake Norian, until he sold it in 2014. And he is the founder and president of Matchroom Sports, Barry Hearn. How are you, Barry? I'm really well. Good to be here, mate. It's it's really good to see you. Let's talk about um, early years and and growing up in Dagenham. I mean, Mm. Dagenham. I mean, it's a hotbed for sporting names and showbiz names, wasn't yeah, it, for those I mean, days? Yeah, Dudley Moore, Sandy Shaw. I mean, yeah. the list is endless, nearly. Paul Ince and people like that were from the area. No, no, there was, like in any industrial area, I suppose, you know, kids come out of it, don't they? And I think we're maybe a little bit more resilient than others. Sometimes you come out of a poorer background, you've got a little bit more fight in you, and uh, that some of us do okay. You know, the boy did good, So, uh, but but we still go back, you know. Tell, tell me about your childhood then, because uh, your dad was a bus conductor, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, I mean, it was a very happy childhood. My dad was bus conductor, tram driver. Mum was just a normal housewife to start with and then became a child lady and cleaned houses. Kids are happy, aren't they? they mm. didn't, no one said we were poor. We, we, you don't really know the difference. We were just happy. It was a very happy, family-based upbringing. I, I can't remember you know, being jealous or envious of anybody. I probably until I got a little bit older then you looked at the bigger picture and thought, cool, I haven't got one of them or I want some of that. And, and that's when the drive in you takes over. But my mum was a driving fool. She was the one that when I was 12 told me I was going to be a chartered accountant and it really wasn't much of a discussion about Why? it. Why was that? She was cleaning someone's house and the man said to her in conversation, your son should be a chartered accountant. And my mother said, why? because neither of us knew what a chartered accountant was. <laughs> yeah. And he said the mortal lines, which stuck with me to this day, was because you never see a poor one. And I was going through that stage of my life at 12 years old where I didn't really want to be poor. I was beginning to see the houses on the hill and saying, why haven't I got one of them? Yeah. You know, why am I living where I'm living? And uh, it, it resonated. And from that moment on, it was never a discussion at all. As I say, I had absolutely no idea what they did. But... I knew you never saw a poor one. But were you one of those kids, Barry, that, that was doing lots of jobs no, and yeah, doing yeah. lots of bits and pieces to make I, a few quid? I didn't stop. I mean, I never stopped. Um, I think first business was stripping tomato plants in Waltham Abbey, which was about a seven-mile bike ride. They'd only let you do three hours a day because you was only 13. Yeah. 
one and tenpence an hour. But at the end of the week, you got a couple of quid and it was a fortune in those days. And it went from there. I ended up with uh, car washing round, window cleaning rounds, gardening rounds, babysitting rounds. Anyone who had a few quid, I was there for. And they knew that, I, you know, I worked hard and I did a decent job. I started working, when I say working on the doors about 17, which sounds a bit dramatic, wasn't as bad as it is today. It's quite an easy job working on. Basically, you open the door, let someone in, took their money <laughs> off them, you know. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't really super violent. Um, but yeah, I always, I wanted things and I knew that I wasn't the brightest spark in the, in the shop. I wasn't the smartest kid in the school by a long way. I was, I played too much sport really. Yeah. Um, but I had a focus and a work ethic that I found out that very few people could match. And that is the asset that stayed with me the rest of my life, really. Once I make my mind up, I'm very difficult to budge. Um, and also, there isn't much I'm not prepared to do to win. Right. No, See, that's a sport thing, isn't it? There's yeah. so many sports stars, and, and well, pr- pretty much everybody who's done this series and, and every successful elite sportsman has to win. Yeah. So I guess that... I think the similarities between business and sport, you know, they're all over the place, aren't they? You know, you've got to prepare properly. Yeah. You know, you've got to have a bit of natural talent, you know, comes thinking faster or, you know, being athletically fit. Uh, you've you've got to listen to the right advice. You've got to make the right moves at the right time. Sure. But you've also got to have the dedication to be able to make commitments and sacrifices to enable you to be, in the words of the prophet the best I can be. And that's all you can hope for, you know. Unfortunately for me, and fortunately at the same time, when it came to sport, I was gold medal enthusiasm, but not even bronze medal in ability. So I was never going to make it, but it didn't stop me trying, to, and I was the best I could be. But that wasn't good enough, but I found that it was in the world of business. So... Accountant, so you're being the best accountant, I guess you can yeah, be. I was uh, you know, you're doing that. But then, see, this is this is where it all then starts mm. making sense. So you're in Rumford, right, and you see this snooker hall. And this is 1973. Do you look at this and think, hold on, I see a huge future? Or was it just a business proposition at the time and just thought, well, you know, we can make a few quid off this? To- totally focused business opportunity. Right. I've never been in a snooker all my life. My mother would have clipped me around the ears if I'd have gone in a snooker when I was younger. They were misspent youth and and the villains were in there, you know. Well, actually, I always found the company of the villains and the layabouts a lot more entertaining than the office workers (laughs) in the evening. But because they had stories to tell, they were characters and I like characters, which is why I like to build characters in sport because people can associate with it. But in 1973, I had a phone call from my accountants. We were, as a, I was finance director of a, uh, fashion textile business at the time but we were looking to diversify and my accountant said are you in, are you still looking I said yes they said we got a chain of snooker halls one of them was in Romford but there was about 17 of them mm. uh, as soon as I walked in the door I felt at home really mm, isn't that funny why what was it I don't know there was a buzz I mean people they were temperance halls though there was no boozing but I can only say that the only other time I really felt like that was the first time I walked into Circus Tavern and watched the darts. I felt at home. I saw people smiling, having a good laugh, watching class sport, trying, you know, the players were trying to make their way, their living. Yeah. They were very entertaining. 
and they had characters. I said, I love characters in everything, you know. You, I mean, we always say in sport today, oh, there's not as many characters as there used to be in my day. And it's true because the training, the, the conditions they play, the sacrifices they have to make, actually takes the character out of the character. Yep. They become clones or, you know, just robots. Uh, they become winning machines. The characters that were inside Billy Dolls in the 70s were hilarious. They were funny, funny people. They would rob you blind. They would tell you stories. They would hustle you out of your last sixpence. And I loved every one of them. So this coincided with Colour TV and BBC Two, Friday nights, hugely successful weekly snooker show, Pop Black. Welcome again to Pop Black. Tonight's players come from group number three. And it features two very old favourites, Ray Reardon and Fred Davis. Was it a plan that you bought these snooker halls then or was it just perfect timing and just a pure piece of luck? I think in my lifetime, if I look back on it, uh, I've had five or six moments of unbelievable luck yeah. that even an idiot couldn't take advantage of. And, and I'm not an idiot. I'm many things, but yeah. not an idiot. Yeah. The fact that I bought this chain of snookles that were making a small profit, but I actually bought them for their property value because they were all in town centres. Sure. You know, I thought, well, if this goes tits up, I'm going to make plenty of money out of selling the property. And then all of a sudden, the BBC in their wisdom, having shown Pop Black for a few years, decided to go to go big on the World Snooker Championships. And suddenly, I'm sitting there with the biggest chain of snookles in the south of England with queues outside the door because everyone had seen it on telly and went, I'll have a go at that. And the people I was working with at the time, working for at the time, said, you're a genius. Yeah. How did you see this coming? And the answer was, I didn't even see it coming in the first what, place. What did you say it at was, the time? I well, said, you know. I said, one's got to consider <laughs> the demographics of this, isn't it? Of course they do. You know, and it's... I can see this is just the right sport at the right time, but actually it was a total piece of luck. And suddenly, you know, I was a success. And and how it, it, you can all fluke it. It's how you take advantage of it, how you maximise it, is where you separate the men from the boys. Sure. And I looked in and thought, I've had this touch. I've had a major touch here. This this is, could be useful. I didn't know there was an even bigger major touch just around the corner, but I thought... Let's start taking advantage of this. Let's start doing events. Let's start doing amateur competitions. Let's put a few quid back in the sport that's giving us a nice few quid. And all of a sudden, this tall ginger kid turned up. And there you have the biggest bit of luck you can ever have in your whole life. Ladies and gentlemen, the Crucible audience always give a special welcome to Steve Davis. Did you see him or did someone say, Barry... You've got to have a little look over here because, I, you know I, what, we can see something here. I started this event called the Lucania National, which was named after the, the, the snooker club chain. Yeah. And to qualify, you had to play twice a week because it was a £1,000 prize money and I don't give my money away <laughs> lightly. Right. So I want to know you as a customer and I was going to reward you. And this kid from Plumstead decided he was, he was learning the game with his dad, Bill, was coaching him and he was going around the country playing different people and getting better, getting experience. And I was in my office in Romford then, about that time, underneath the snooker hall. And Les Coates, who was the manager at Romford, Lucania, phoned downstairs. He went, Governor, he said, there's a kid up here you should come and have a look at. Mm. So I said, oh, why was that? And he went, he looks good. So oh, nothing else to do anyway, so, you know. And by then I was beginning to fall in love with the sport anyway because I appreciated how difficult it was and I, I started playing quite a lot myself. 
And I went up there and there was a crowd round table 13 with Vic Harris, sadly no longer with us, the Essex champion, uh, playing this tall ginger kid with, with long hair, uh, a shirt that had an argument with his trousers, <laughs> uh, a jumper that could have almost papal, it was so holy, or holy. Uh, and he was he's playing a safety shot, I seem to remember, the first shot, and he didn't seem... I mean, obviously, he, his focus was what hit me. He, he didn't seem to be there. He, he yeah. was like... It was almost surreal. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't tell you that I thought he was going to be a great player because I didn't know enough about it myself anyway, but we we... You know, he said, I'd, I'd like to play in your competition, Mr. Ern. And I said, well, son, you, you're going to have to come here twice a week. He went, I know, I know, I will. Yeah. He said, I'm taking three buses from Plumstead. And he did. And did you say, what's your name? My name's Steve Davis. And I went, all right, son. And the friendship started and the relationship between the two of us, which is actually, I think, is a better story than his playing career because you couldn't have two people more different than mm. me and Steve. And yet we've been best mates ever since. So that wasn't exciting. What was exciting was this was years of our dreams. This is years of sitting down, planning the victory speeches, talking about over in a cup of tea, crying your eyes out in your own living room, thinking the emotion, two council house boys sticking it up to the world and <laughs> saying, we are going to be the best. We're gonna, and, we're, and when we're going to be the best, you're going to hear about it yeah. from the mouth. Yeah. The best mouth in the world in snooker was me and the best player in the world was Steve. What a combination. And neither interfered with the other's role. So we became this spitting images couple, you know, of the, the artful manager and the really clever, qualified, technically brilliant. And it worked. Steve Davis reached the quarter-final of the World Championship in 1980, and although he was seeded 13th, he was the bookmaker's favourite the next year. He beat Jimmy White in the first round, Alex Higgins in the next, then Terry Griffiths, then defending champion Cliff Thorburn in the semi-final, and then beat Welshman Doug Mountjoy to win the 1981 World Championship 18-12. He's breathing heavily as he comes down to this final pink. And that's it. The World Snooker Champion, 1981, Steve Davis. Congratulations there to the Embassy World Champion, Steve Davis, from his manager, Barry Hare. So it was the final pink win in Barry. You ran on. I kept saying to myself, don't do anything stupid, Barry, because... I know what you like. <laughs> and then suddenly he pointed the pink and I did something very stupid. Next thing I know, I'm, I don't even know how I got there. I mean, I was in the middle of the crowd. I just jumped out. Anyway, I'm on the thing. It's him like a, you know, him like a rugby you tackle. Really, 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 really. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the greatest day of my life. Well, Steve Davis is now the new world number one. Wins more titles, more players signed to Matchroom. And we all went a little snooker loopy. And also boxing and darts beckons when we return. With Barry Hearn. My Sporting Life. Paul Coit in conversation with Barry Hearn on Talk Sports. It's 1981. An accountant turned snooker hall owner, turned manager. Barry Hearn has just seen his client and best friend Steve Davis win the World Snooker Championship. But Barry, how much actually was this a partnership? And can you say how important you were to each other to achieve the success that you had? I, I couldn't do it on my own. Um, he could have done, but probably not as well or as lucratively. Right. You know, I mean, I would say it and do things that Steve wouldn't dream of saying and doing, but I never found it. Steve was really the first snooker professional. Uh, when I say who lived like a professional, you know, who trained, who prepared, who thought it through. Yeah. There were lots of good players, Ray Reardon, Spencer Higgins, all those really good players, but no one 
practised, no one had the discipline or the dedication that Davis had. And it was Steve's mantra, the way he performed, that was picked up by the Stephen Hendrys, by the Ronnie O'Sullivan's, mm. by the John Higgins, by the Mark Williams. And, and together they evolved a level of professionalism that had never been seen in snooker before, in the same way as Phil Taylor did in darts. Well, snooker was, was enormous, wasn't enormous. it? We're looking at the 80s, and, and you had a lot to do with that, of course, and what was going on, and then Matram begins, and then you start having all the best players basically joining you. How did yeah. that work? Were you just going to them and saying, you want to come over here, or Some... were they all calling you and saying, we want a bit of that? Well, bit? we were generating the money, and in professional sport, you generate enough money, you get an awful lot of customers. Sure. Uh, a lot of people asked and were told no. Alex Higgins included. Because, because it, Alex Higgins, you know, I would have thought... No, massive draw, but the wrong brand. See, you've got, right. you've got to think about brand value. Okay. And he was... I mean, Alex and I had a tempestuous Jekyll and Hyde relationship. One minute, we'd love each other. The next minute, we'd be up, a, up against a wall somewhere. Mm. But he didn't fit what I was trying to do in snooker. And he, he could never really come to terms with that. Because he was the biggest draw mm. and he was the most exciting player and he was a player that everybody in Snooker owed a debt to. He just wasn't right for our brand and where we were going to take the sport. It was cleaner. It was more professional. It was new. Well, I couldn't afford to have the type of press that I would have got had I got... I took enough of a chance on Jimmy White, mm. but he turned out all right in the end. Were they all up for Snooker Loopy? No, but they were when I finished telling them they were all up for Snooker. That was a pretty good example, really. And I first said to them, listen, we're going to do this song with Chaz and Dave. Who, I came, mean, who came to who, Barry? Was it Chaz or was it no, you? I, no, I phoned Chaz because he'd done the... You must remember this. They'd done the song for Tottenham. That's right. And I thought to myself, do you know what? I mean, we're... At the time... With all the violence that was in football with crowds in the 80s, yeah. snooker was arguably bigger than football for a little short nano no, space. Fair, fair. Um, and I phoned Chaz up and I went, could you do us, could you do us a song, Chaz? Because we're all, you know, London boys and I like the Tottenham song. It was a bit, of, a bit of fun. And it was only purely to broaden the base for the sport and you know, mm. take it to other, you know, younger people or whatever. Uh, he said, well, what's the story? I said, look, I've got, I got these players. And I told him a little bit. And he went away and he came up and he wrote, it was perfect. And the players were like, wow, have we really got to do... I said, you're going to do a video. You're going to be on top of the pops. What? But, of course, when they did it, they loved it. And, of course, Snooker Loopy got to number, what, four in it, Brad, or something. Sold 220,000 records, which was unbelievable. We thought it was easy then. We followed it up with a Romford rap. It was a total disaster. He's Tony, he's Steve, he's Neil, he's Jim, he's Terry, he's Dan, he's Willie. We're going to do the Romford rap for you. I think it sold about three copies and was and, and was totally embarrassing with the video we filmed in the Hippodrome. Uh, Jimmy White in a white suit. I, I still have lasting memories. But Snooker Loopy was a massive success. And, and it is because 40 years later... We all know every single word, don't we? But we may not want to admit it. Okay, we all do. But so is the, with all the awards and everything that you've won over the years, Barry, is the gold disc still pride of place oh, somewhere? No, the, the gold disc never arrived. I you never are saw, no, kidding no, me. I never saw the gold disc. But I do have the original sleeve cover of Snooker Loopy, which, of course, I think I shall bury it with me in the time capsule <laughs> okay. for future generations. We're all Snooker well, let's move forward a bit now, Barry. 1986-87, Matram's doing very well. Snooker's huge. 
but it's not enough. Um, did you look at boxing at this point and then think, you know what, I could have some of this too? As I said, I've, I've always been a boxing fan and, and, and I never really know why. I can remember being underneath my sheets and I think I was seven, I think, listening to these fights in the middle of the night coming on my transistor radio. And I think the first one I listened to, I think it was Rocky Marciano against Archie Moore, if I remember rightly. Heavyweight champion of the world, Rocky Marciano. Marciano. 15 rounds for the heavyweight Championship of the world. I was in love with that, the principle of it, man against man, you know, one against one. Sure. Uh, no team to blame, take your medicine, all the sort of things that I like. And I wanted to be, I was getting, I wasn't getting, you know, a little bit bored, I suppose. You know, the snooker had gone well and we'd, we'd, you know, we'd established places, we'd been all over the world and, and it was going well. But I needed another challenge and I thought boxing was good. And Terry Lawless, who was living in Hornchurch, who managed Frank Bruno, he phoned me up one day out of the blue, really, and said, I don't know why, I still don't know why, but you ever thought of being a boxing promoter? And I went, yeah, not maybe. He said, yeah, there's nothing in it. He said, you know, there's only us and that bloke Frank Warren. Frank was a a youngster then who who challenged the cartel of Lawless, Duff, Astaire, Barrett, the, the cartel. And uh, I did a, sh- a couple of shows with him down at South End mm. in the Cliffs Pavilion. And I remember the first one made £608 profit and the second one lost seven and a half grand. But by then I was hooked. I loved it. But of course, I wanted, I need big. I need big to get myself really up and excited. And uh, the biggest I fight, as a fight fan, which I was anyway, I used to go to all the fights. And yeah. the am- I went to the amateurs and, and, and the pro, shop, pro yeah. fights. I wasn't boxing myself at this time. I didn't start putting gloves on until I was about 28. But uh, at this time, I, I was 25, 26. I wanted to do something big. And the biggest fight I could think of was Frank Bruno, who everybody loved, mm-hmm. the nation's favourite, against Joe Bugner, who everybody hated. That's right. Because he'd beat Henry Cooper. And he was a squeaky voice living in Australia. Yeah. And uh, somehow or the other, I was in a Chinese restaurant with my wife. And she's a very direct woman. And I said, she said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to be, I think oh, I might give this boxing promotion a go. She said, you don't know anything about boxing. But what would you do? Yeah. I said, I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd do Bruno versus Bugner. She said, impossible. And at that moment, I said, well, I, had, I already had Joe Bugner's phone number. And I went to the receptionist in this Chinese restaurant in South End. Mm. said, can I use your phone? And I phoned Bugner in Melbourne. And this little squeaky voice said, can I help you? I said, it's Barry Hernge. I said, you don't know me. I do a bit of snooker. Yeah. He went, oh, well, I've heard of you, I think. I said, look, I cut to the chase. I want you to come over here and fight Frank Bruno. He said, that's going to cost you a lot of money. I said, I don't know whether it will or not. I said, I know you're not earning a lot of money. He was fighting, though, at that time, yeah, wasn't he? but he was only getting 20. He was really at the tail end. Yeah. I said, I'll give you £250,000. And the line went quiet and he said, and what plane did you want me on? And that was it. And that was how we made the fight. Barry wanted me to come in a bit later, like two days before the fight. And I said, no way. I can't create big enough problems that way. Are you going to win the fight, Bill? Yes, I'm going to knock Bruno out. And it was all off and running. I had no idea what I was doing. The fight was a huge success. One of the biggest audience winners to this day on ITV. Some are just shy of 19 million viewers. Greg Dyke bought it from who was running LWT at the time. 
we sold a million. He didn't believe it though, did no, he, Greg Dyke? He didn't. He said, I don't. Be- I, he asked me how much did I want for my TV. I said, I want £200,000. Yeah. He said, I don't think you can deliver this. He said, you're new. You don't know what you're doing, do you? I went, I don't, but I can deliver. He said, if you deliver, I'll give you 250000 To this day is the only time in my career which has spanned many, many discussions with TV executives around the world. That is the only time someone has off- offered me more money than I asked for. Well. And it was a huge success. Yeah, well, a good performance, a good effort from Dugna, but let's talk about the man who's just really impressed everybody. Big Frank Bruno has finally come of age. A real professional performance. From the- now, where you had a special relationship in snooker with Steve Davis, in boxing, it was Chris Eubank. Tell me about Chris. Well, I mean, again, when you talk about lucky things and you say, well, you know, BBC putting snooker on the telly, Steve Davis walking in uh, to my life, and then all of a sudden, Len Ganley, the great snooker referee from Northern Ireland, phoned me up one day during the, the World Championships and said, there's a kid up here who wants to meet you. And I said, oh, who's that? He said, his name's Chris Eubank. He's a boxer. I said, yeah, I've heard the name. Um, so I said, yeah, he said he wants to meet you. I said, oh, I said it. And Len set, set the meeting up. And I'm waiting at the, uh, the hotel in Sheffield. Uh, and this enigma... <laughs> swans into the room. I, 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 to this day, I can't tell you. <laughs> I mean, I'm in awe of sportsmen, right? Do you have to put that in? I, I'm in awe of anyone who's got special ability. If they're a tiddlywink player, I'm in awe. But the presence of people sometimes changes. There are certain sportsmen and women that when they walk in the room, the lights go on. And I don't think I've ever seen such a bright light as this kid who's had about nine fights, who's never won anything, dressed nicely, but not elaborate, but had a, had a swagger. And his opening lines were, Hello, Mr Hearn. I am Christopher Eubank. I'm an athlete, and I know my worth. <laughs> and I'm like, and I have just fallen in love with this kid. Yeah. It's like, the star's gone on. And we did a deal, quite quickly. This man is... Somehow, I think his heart is good. I don't know why it's good. I mean, you don't find promoters with a good heart. They usually use fighters as meat. This man gives a fair deal. A three-fight deal, £2,000, £2,500 and £3,000 purses. He wanted £300 a week living expenses. And he appreciated that if he got beat, he would lose the £300 a week. Mm. And I said, no, if you get beat twice, you lose the £300 a week. Because sometimes you can get unlucky. Cut eye, controversial decision. Sure. So he said there's three rules. Not being funny, I was fairly well known, fairly affluent, and he's talking to me like I was working for him, which is probably how it ended up, and which is not such a bad thing. Mm. And he said the three rules are I won't box anyone under 25 years old, I won't box a southpaw, and I won't box an undefeated fighter. They were the rules. And we didn't change the rules. When we finished together, when Eubank fought Joe Calzaghe, he broke one of his own rules. He fought an undefeated fighter. But it was an adventure and it was that stroke of luck which in the late 80s our company was undergoing severe problems in a, in a massive recession uh, and Eubank was a good... That was a, He was a bit like the cavalry coming over the hill mm. and he became, of course, you know... 1990 when he, he fought Nigel Ben for the world title a massive massive name 
and one of the biggest sports personalities we've ever seen in boxing. Was he your favourite fighter? Yeah, he wasn't the greatest fighter in the world, although mm. I told him he was every minute of the day. I loved him to death because he was just different, you know. And uh, we generated huge amounts of money together. I've kept mine. He's spent his. That's OK. It's pretty normal. I'm a bit more boring than he is, you know. He led a life. But uh, to this day, you know, he is eccentric. He is a pain sometimes. He is some... Oh, God, drives you mad. But he's my mate. So that won't change. And I'll never say a bad word about him. You're simply the well, Barry and Chris have a very successful relationship which leads to world titles, but the recession hits in the early 90s and tragedy strikes in 1991. I'm Paul Coyce. When we return with Barry Hearn on My Sporting Life. My Sporting Life with Barry Hearn on Talk Sports. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. My Sporting Life. Paul Coit's in conversation with Barry Hearn on Talk Sports. Barry is now a sporting impresario. He's got the best stable of snooker players in the world. He's at the beginning of making matter and the biggest promoters in boxing. But, Barry, I know there were tough times ahead for the business, but it gives me the impression you, you kind of made it up as you go along. Is that fair? Yeah, and it wasn't that successful, really. I mean, financially, 82, I, snow, I sold my snooker. Was, I was going to retire, you know. I've made a, a decent amount of money. Looking back, it wasn't enough to retire on, but it felt like it. And then, of course, you know, the, the Davis years and, you know, yeah. making loads of money out of snooker. And then I, was, I, I sort of got guilty, I think, got carried away. I could smell the fact that television was changing. I'd been over to America many times and I'd looked at ESPN over there and seen the amount of wall-to-wall spot. Once again, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the ESPN Sports Center. I'm John Saunders, along with Chris Berman. We first. I thought, where's ours? We're, we have got none of this. We get 15 minutes on grandstand on BBC. Yeah. And of course, it was coming. You know, screen sport, Eurosport. These were the early dealers, and then B Sky B. Yeah. You know, that that was the the extra bit of luck, but that was 1990. So in the meantime, for the smaller. Um, TV stations, particularly like Screen Sport and Eurosport. I was doing dozens and dozens of shows, mm. but they were all losing money. I was One is I was learning the business, which is expensive to learn because you make a lot of mistakes. 
Two is they didn't have enough broadcast cash to keep businesses like mine arrived, and but I wouldn't take no for an answer. I mm. still I still did the event. So all the money I made in eighty two, by the time you got to eighty eight, I'd lost a lot. Right. And now it's hello, Mr. Bank Manager. Can I borrow X, Y, and Z? Well, time you get up to, you know, a year or so of doing hundreds of shows, you owe the bank quite a lot of money. Uh, and it was then a time of resilience of thinking, what am I going to do with my life? You know, I think I've messed up a bit here. Looking back on it, I hadn't. I'd paid the price. And that's a price that every athlete has to pay. You know, there are times when athletes don't want to wake up in the morning. Mm. They've got to if they want to be a champion. And business people the same. You can't take a shortcut. You can't put your head in the sand. No one's going to help you out. When you want a favour, when you've got money, like now, I've, I'm reasonably affluent. People queue up to give me things. Mm. I don't need it. Mm. When I was skint, no one gave me anything other than a kick in the nuts. Right. You know? So you get used to that. Is it true when they say you find out who your friends are? Of course. And you case? find out there's not very many of them. Is that right? Yeah. So I had a few, fortunately, but I also had the work ethic. That's what kept me through. So I would go into the office and I would not come home until I sent someone, somewhere, an invoice every single day. And after two years, I dug myself out of that hole. And then the cavalry came over the hill, Eubank come on the scene, mm. and B Sky B started transmitting sport sure. as it should be and changed the world as we know it. The Chris Eubank Michael Watson fight. Mm. Now, this was something you were obviously involved in. It was your show, sure, sure. Um, and it was it was it was probably around that time, wasn't it? As well, early nineties. What what are your memories of that? And, and, and what well, do you think of I mean, when you think back to that? Eubank was was a big draw, and the middleweight division and the super middleweight division at that time was beginning to emerge in the same way as the American. You're talking about Duran, Leonard, Hagler, Hearns. You know, you're talking Eubank, Ben. Watson, Collins. Mm. You know, so it's big business. Eubank had to have proper fights. Uh, Colin, um, Michael Watson had beaten Nigel Benn. was a great, great fighter. No question. No question. He didn't have the profile. He wasn't shout, the type that shouts and, 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 and swears at, at press conferences or wears elaborate clothes. He was just a nice guy, mm. but an exceptionally good fighter, mm. as he'd proven against Nigel Benn. So the first fight, uh, I think it was Earl's Court, was very close. I really did think Watson would Yeah, can't go along with that, Reg. From the seventh round onwards, uh, Watson really came in, got control of the action. Eubank became ragged. Watson won the fight in the eyes. And a lot of people thought that Michael Watson won it. Now, and Michael and I, have, we still disagree over this because I think Eubank won it. Mm. Uh, and he, he always says, no, you don't know what you're talking about. He's probably right. And he'd uh, say you would say that, wouldn't Yeah, you, of course, yeah. But, but Michael was with me as well at that stage, so we had right. both of them. But sure. The second fight, which was really by public demand because people felt that Michael, because he's such an, everybody loved Michael Watson. He was a nice guy. And uh, this braggart Eubank had, you know, nicked it. The rules of boxing are very simple. If you're challenging for a title, you've got to win it. You can't just throw a few more punches. You've got to actually show you can win it. That's probably why Eubank retained the title. But we did do the rematch, which... Made a lot of sense financially. Mm-hmm. Made a lot of sense for public image of boxing and for and for both Eubank and Watson. It made a lot of sense. Uh, Watson got more money for the rematch than he got in the first fight. Eubank was hurt, stung by the criticism, and wanted to put records right. And the stage was set. Going back to Tottenham for my my first show with Bruno Bugner, mm-hmm. being at Tottenham, we were back there. 
that was the end of the good part of the story because from then onwards it all went horribly downhill. The show was a financial disaster. We never sold anywhere near enough tickets to break even. Uh, and worse was it ended with Michael Watson having life threatening and life endangering injuries which would affect him for the rest of his life. Uh, you try to get good out of everything and it's tough with that story. I mm. think all of us that were involved in that fight should and do feel slightly responsible Why? because we were involved in it. You know, you, you do, you, you criticise yourself. You know, if I wasn't a boxing promoter, I wouldn't have done that show. Mm. Someone else might have done it, but it wouldn't have been my... I've got to live with that. Michael Watson is a very close personal friend. I've watched him. I was there the day after and watched the surgery and things. I mean, you don't forget things like that. So it's why it holds you in such good stead when you do do business with boxers. You are fair, you are straight, you're honourable because you realise what these people go through mm. or the dangers they put themselves out for your entertainment. Eubank was never the same fighter after Watson fight. Yeah. And Watson's life was never the same after the Eubank fight. Were you the same afterwards as well? It's a very difficult question to ask because I'd love to say no, I wasn't. But in fact, I might have been. Mm. It, it took me a long time to realise the intensity of what went on that night. I don't, initially it was, you know, okay, well, we've got to live with this and move on. But you don't actually ever move on. Mm. And it's just a, one of the most joyous occasions for me is seeing Michael Watson leading as, as normal a life as he can now. Sure. Because he's a, he's a character, he's funny. He laughs and he takes everything as it was God's will that it happened. So there's no recrimination. And whilst that sounds easy, that must be the most difficult thing you could imagine doing. Mm. And he does it so well that he inspires me. Barry, let's change sport again. And it's 1995 and I guess this is a real labour of love. Good morning. A very warm welcome to... Brisbane Road for what will be the first of, I'm sure, a lot of fun and uh, entertaining press conferences that we'll be having here over the weeks and months and years to follow. Firstly, can I make the formal announcement that uh, we have now completed the paperwork and that I have personally acquired 66% of Lake Norrin Football Club and, of course, have acquired the position of chairman of this club with immediate effect. So you take over your boyhood club, Lake Norian. Now, did you feel compelled to do this? Did you feel this was something you had to do? <laughs> uh, was it a business decision or was this truly your heart leading your head here? I used to say to my... Steve Dawson's my chief executive. He's been with me 30-odd years. He knows me probably better than anyone. I've told him for years and years, we never, ever get involved in football. You never, ever get involved with football clubs. It is a licence to lose money. It's horrible. The fans will kill you. And then all of a sudden, Tony Wood, who owns Lake Norrin, and he came to see me and said, look, I love Lake Norrin, but I can't afford it anymore. And it wasn't about money. Oh, I think I paid £2.53 for Lake Norrin. Okay. But there was a couple of million quid of debts as well. So <laughs> I, that, can, I can imagine yeah. there might be. But I wasn't going to do it. <laughs> they came to see me and he said, I, I, I can't do it anymore. And I said, show me the accounts. I am, and if I haven't told you before, a chartered accountant. He showed me these accounts. I went, what mug's going to buy this? And he said, why don't you come to the ground and see the potential? <laughs> the, the worst thing, the cleverest thing he ever said, and the worst thing I ever did was to go, of course, 
The word potential is a horrible word because there's no real definition. It's in everyone's mindset what potential is, isn't Everybody's it? got potential somewhere. And, and, and I stood there, I went to the ground and, and, and I stood there and I looked out over this really nice pitch but pretty terrible stadium. And I remember standing on the right-hand side behind the goal every Saturday, every home match, and I, and I suddenly thought, this club's got so much potential. <laughs> and the next thing you know, I'm in and that's it. And, of course, getting in is easy. With all the grief, when I die, if someone said to me, your 10 best moments of your life and the thousands upon thousands of events I've done and the hundreds of thousands of sportsmen and women I've known and the travels around the world and the fun and the games, two or three of them would be Lake Norian. Would they really? Of course. What would the number one be then at Lake Norian? I'm tempted to say Jonathan Touhey's goal against Arsenal when we drew 1-1 in the FA Cup. But then I'd have to compare that with the day at Oxford, final day of the season, Mm. when a win gets us automatic promotion. And Oxford, if they lose, will get relegation. And the drama of following Grimsby versus Northampton away, which was key. When we were behind, suddenly we were in the playoffs. When... When we, and then all of a sudden, with 45 seconds to go, and we're drawing, Northampton equalise, which means a draw is enough. But by then, no one has told the team. And nine of the Orient squad are leaving, leading a kamikaze <laughs> ra- charge at the Oxford defence. And we don't need the bloody goal. We yeah, just yeah. need to draw. And Martin Ling is screaming at these, get back, get back. But by now, you could, you could, you, you, you're speaking another language. And, and passed up the wing, I think. Lockwood made a move, went up to some... They slipped it in. Jabbo Ibiri, he's, I think his bum went. He, did, he didn't want the responsibility <laughs> of missing, so he like jumped over the ball, which left it for Lee Steele, who stroked it in. And the whole world erupted again. It's a double celebration, I should say. It's all changed. And in the last minute of a sensational season, Iron surely are getting promoted. This is weird about football, isn't it? How do you get... I mean, try and put it in perspective. It's not, you know, it's not rocket. It's not going to change the world, is it? It's not, it's not going to cure cancer. It's not going to... But you know what? For that moment... It's the most important thing in the world's ever seen. That's the final whistle. Late Norin are promoted in dramatic fashion. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. You couldn't have written a script for it. Barry, you, you summed up everything. You know, it's the love of the sport. Yeah, sure. And, and, and there's so many businessmen that will get involved yeah. in the sport that don't feel the sport. And my God, you feel it, don't oh, you? Oh, mate. I, I mean, I don't know. I used to walk past Steve Dawson's office... Once a month and he'd shout out, 60 grand, 80 grand, 110, 70, 25, which is how much they needed in Orient every month, you know. I capped them at a million quid, not yeah. not being flash, but that was the most I wanted to lose in sure. a year. I sure. thought that was quite a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Well, it is a lot of money. But, of course, reality zoomed in after 19 years where you think, I do like to win. Um, this is a fight. Unless I really stick something significant in. Mm. This is a fight I'm not going to win. We got to, I mean, we were 2-0 up in the playoff at Wembley to go to the championship with a budget of £1.4 million a year Mm. for the entire playoff.
playing style. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. And we had a team of people, and I'm not going to tell them they're the greatest footballs in the world, but they were a team. They were inspired to be the best they can be. And I shall never forget that season. And the chairman of bloody Rotherham said to me at half-time, here up, lad, you're much better than us. You've won this easy. I said, you can shut your mouth. <laughs> I said, it's half-time. Funny things happen in football. And then a player that we'd, we'd, we'd had and sold, Alex Revelle, played for us for years, yeah. scored twice for Rotherham. And then they beat us in the playoffs, in the shootout, penalty shootout, when we were 3-1 up. And that was a kick in the nuts. I actually never recovered from. I sold the club to a man I perhaps shouldn't have done, Mm. but a man who promised me he would put a load of money in, which he did. He lived up to his promise. He must have put 15 million quid into Lake Norrin, and I wasn't going to do that because it wasn't good business. Well, that man was Italian Francesco Bacchetti, who presided over two relegations in three years under 11 managers and took Lake Norrient out of the Football League for the first time in 112 years. Still to come, Barry Hearn reignites the world of darts when we return on My Sporting Life. My Sporting Life. Paul Coit in conversation with Barry Hearn on Talk Sport. We've been through snooker in the 70s and 80s, boxing in the 90s, Lake Norrient in the 2000s, and now it's time for darts. So, Barry, the man that revolutionised the darts, so where did it begin for you? Was it Lakeside? Was it the Circus Tavern? Uh, and what made you think that this is something I have to be involved in? I've never been to Lakeside, right. ever. Uh, but I had some friends who knew me from, you know, obviously what I was doing with snooker and, and, and boxing, the PDC were struggling. They'd broken away from the BDO. They were all suing each other. The lawyers were making loads of money and they weren't. Sky had come to a little bit of the rescue of the PDC by giving them airtime. And, but because not, the BDO, sorry, the BDO was was, B- was the one on Lakeside. This is from Lakeside. BBC. It was always on the BBC. Always. Every year. Always. And it was usually spon- in the early years sponsored by Embassy for yep. lots of money. Now it's time to catch up on what's been happening in the World Professional Darts Championship and to do so we'll join Tony Gubber at the Lakeside Country Club. Uh, the sport had been big, it, it, it'd been up and down like a roller coaster, you know, but it, it was still yeah, smoky, beer-led sport, if you like. And it did have a bit of a reputation in the day, didn't it? Double vodka, single paint... Another double vodka. <laughs> 100 milligrams. 100 milligrams. Anyway, Dick Alex and, and Tommy Cox, the two of the founder members of the PDC, said, look, we'd like you to get interested, involved with us in some way. And I agreed to help them out with their TV, overseas TV and domestic TV negotiations, which I did for a couple of years. We made some progress. But then they said, look, you know, they, they, the PDC were so smart. These guys were super smart because they did something that most sports governing bodies don't do. They looked in the mirror mm. and they realised they were not good enough mm. to do the job that needed to be done. It takes a big man to admit that, you know. And then they came to me and they said, would you, would you be our chairman? And, you know, we pay you what, what you need or whatever. And I said to them, I don't do chairmans, I do owners. Yeah. So we constructed a deal where I took a significant stake, which has subsequently gone up and up and up. So 
I control the equity. I have to control because I can't, I know it sounds terrible, but I know what I'm doing. I can't have people influencing my yeah, decisions that don't enough. know what they're doing. Sure. So therefore I've got, I have to have control and it's in everyone's benefit. And I can only say that by judging prize money levels because that's what eventually I won't be judged on how much profit the professional dust corporation makes. I'll be judged on what the prize money is to players. And I'm happy with that. So they invited me down to uh, Circus Tavern at Perfleet for World Championships. And as I said earlier, as soon as I walked in, I thought, oh, I like this. You know, they're all having a, they're all smoking. I used to smoke in those days. They're, they're, they're drinking beer. I, I was quite partial to a glass, <laughs> glass or two. Uh, they're gambling. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Hold on, your mates from the Lacania uh, weren't in yeah, there again. No, I, I, I'm, I'm absolutely made up with this. And we're watching world-class sport. Yeah. And the atmosphere was great. So I just said to him, I turned around to Dick Alex, I remember saying to him, I just smell money. And from that moment on, I thought, I want to turn a working man's game that's played in boozers into a global sport that gets the recognition and the credibility and the applause and not... Because we live in a society that looks down its nose at you. Oh, darts players, a bit fat, and they? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, darling, they earn millions of pounds a year. And why? Because I'll give them a circuit where they can earn millions of pounds a year. And they are now changing their lives, which is what all sport is about. Sport is about changing your life. And so many of these governing bodies are out there. They have no recognition. They don't look at how they change their life. They look at the sport and they're interested and they love their sport. Mm. You've got to reward the people that entertain us, which are the sportsmen and women that make sacrifices. You've got to make their life different. The onus is on you. So you better be commercially very, very good because if you're not, Someone like me will put you out of a job. So what do you see and what, what's the first thing you do? You know, I'm thinking of how darts used to be. Yeah. I'm thinking of Leighton Reese, and then there was John Lowe and you know, Jockey Wilson. And great, great, great personalities. Know, great personalities, great players, but something had to change. Are you thinking, I've got to add more showbiz to this, but I need it to be completely professional. It's got to be impressive. Where do you start? I'm not going to tell you all the rules, mate. You'll be doing my job next. <laughs> but close your eyes in a dark room, you say, what do we need? Well, the first thing we need in any sport is activity. Yeah. If these guys haven't got something to play in, never mind the prize money, that comes later. But they need to play. Right, so we'll create a format of events. We'll create. And I copy. See, I'm not a genius. I just copy other things that work. Mm. So I look at golf and say, that works. Right. So I'll have a Q score. Mm. And then I'll change my ratings to money so that everyone understands if you win a load of money, you're highly rated. So that never existed before? No. All right. No, none none of that. There was no Q school. There was no rating system as such. I mean, it was there was a minor, there was a version of it. But once you've got that, then you think, right now, I've got to start getting more money in. So, hello, Mister Sky, um, you've you've added some real good bargains over the years. Time to pay the piper. Right. Hello, Mister ITV. And by the way, the figures are good, so it's justified. I'm not robbing anybody. But if you don't pay it, someone else will pay it. I'm not looking for favours. I'm just looking for fairness on both sides. Over the years. Then we start creating the characters. This is the mixture of the cake that comes out that makes it taste a bit better than the cake down the road. So we look at the players and we say, right, what do they need? They're all characters anyway, actually, because where they come from, they're working class people. They can generally rabbit a bit. They can stay in their own corner. They like a drink. They like a bit of banter, you know, and then in a nice way. Sometimes not so nice. Uh, so let's give them a let's give them a 
in conjunction with them, it's a partnership. Let's yeah. give them a, a name. Let's give them a persona. Let's give them their entry music. And let's build around that. This is not a million miles away you did with the snooker players back in the 80s, no, though, is it? Of course, that's what I'm saying. Exactly the same. Yeah. And where did I copy all of this from? WWE. To the way they put their shows on, the entrances, the big walk-ons, the music, the lights, the crowd with the name. Where do you think all those come? You just steal good ideas. Yeah. You know, you know, if you have one original one, you've done right. But, but basically, if you stand back and you can say, right, who's been successful? That's where I want to be. And that's how you start. So you look at it and say, well, golf. I mean, when I started with snooker in the 80s, golf, uh, snooker was bigger than golf. Well, it's probably several hundred million behind golf now. Mm. So have we gone wrong? Yes, we have. And we should have learnt from it. And we'll get it right. And we are getting it right slowly. We'd, we need to get it right a bit quicker, in my view. Mainly because I'm getting old and I want to see it before I peg it. Darts was so beautiful because there, we started with £500,000 of prize money spread between all these players. This year it's £16 million And I'm desperate to get to 20 because my ego is bigger than their prize fund. Every time you put the prize money out, I feel good about myself. <laughs> Don't ask me why. It costs you money. But it's the game. You see, you're playing to win. And everything we're playing to win, every time, every conversation we've had throughout this hour is about how do you win. Yeah. And you win by Davis and Eubank. They win cups, belts, trophies. I win balance sheets, PL accounts. And that's the two sides of sport. So is it purely for you, is it about, I mean, the accountant there from Dagenham, is it about the money? Is no. that what it is? It's not, though, Barry, no, is it? it's never been about the money. From 1982, Matchroom was formed to have fun. That was the first line. Yeah. We're going to do this. Me and Davis are going to go around the world with a few other snooker players and we're going to have fun. And we might nick a few quid. <laughs> yeah. But, that, you know, we're reasonable. You know, we, got, we still like to, we don't like to leave money. And then it, it grows from there and, you know, you start off quite small, you know, you do a bit of boxing, you do, we do 12 different sports now, uh, yeah. but probably five of them are the real key issues of, of monetary, but they're all on a mission to become, they're so far away from, I say like golf, they're so far away from that. I mean, we're all leagues away from paying our athletes what footballers get, mm. and yet, they're worth it. Yeah. You know, I mean, 1.6 million people on Sky watch the World Darts Championships. There is nothing other than Premiership football that gets more than that. And yet, my darts players, although they can earn a million, million or two million a year, they're nowhere near at the level of professional footballers. So, you know, you're fighting this crusade all the time for recognition, for credibility, for acceptance, to avoid snobbery, to avoid people looking down their nose. You know, and uh, the pleasure is when you win, is when people turn around and say, you've changed my life. Now, I've, my family are now secure, and that, that's the best. That's the motivation for me. Now, it wasn't early doors, mm. early doors. There are three stages in life, I find. The first stage with me was being so selfish, it's untrue. Mm. Just looking after myself and doing whatever I've got to do to be successful. That's stage one. 
when you achieve a certain amount of success, you then become a much better father and a much better husband and you care for your family. If you get past that successfully, stage three is to remember where you came from and look after the community that you came from. And that's the stage I'm at now. Stage four is look after the country you came from. And stage five is look after the world you came from. But unless you're Bill Gates or Jeff Bozos or someone like that, maybe that's too big a task for someone as humble as me. What are you most proud of, Barry? I'm proud that every morning I wake up, I feel good about myself. Good for you. Barry Hearn, founder and chairman of Matrim Sport. Thank you for sharing your sporting life with us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, mate. This is My Sporting Life on Talk Sports. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.